0: Johnny Damon was the epitome of Red Sox Nation in 2004. Uh, He played outfield for one of the most storied teams in American baseball history. He was called uh, Outfield Jesus because of his long shaggy hair, and the media called it uh, the most beautiful locks in baseball. He was a maniac. Uh, He was a key piece in breaking almost a hundred year slump of national championships. And and few rivalries are more intense at that time than the Red Sox and the Yankees. Fast forward to a bank of microphones and Johnny Damon sitting behind the bank of microphones in 2006. And he was about to announce that he was going to play for their arch rival, the New York Yankees. And as he sat there, outfield Jesus sat clean cut, freshly shorn, And they said, hey, was it a tough decision to go go play for the Yankees? Because you knew about the grooming policy that we're not going to be a distraction. We're here to win championships. He looked at him. He said, nope. I'm a Yankee now. And what's interesting is in that moment, he said what I'm known for, I'm willing to give up to be a part of something that he thought was greater, right? And so you can see where I'm going with this, is when he entered into what his identity was at that time, right? Everything changed in a moment. No one would ever think that this guy would become that. And so when we come and we meet Jesus, everything changes. When we really, really meet Jesus, everything changes. Not a relationship from afar. And we're gonna see Jesus for who he is today, And so leading into today, what my prayer has been is that we would see Jesus in all of his glory, maybe for the very first time, maybe you've been around church, what just happened, it really is audacious. If you walked in for the first time and you've never been in church, what you just experienced with palms raising and everything else, that was ridiculous. We paraded a bunch of little kids in, they raised a bunch of palms, what the symbolic nature of what those palms are doing, the Bible says that when Jesus comes back in all of his glory, what will happen is even the rocks will cry out. Even the trees will bow down and wave. That's the picture of what you just saw. So if trees that are inanimate are inanimate blocks of wood, they worship as Jesus come back in all of his glory, what will you and I do? What will you and I do? And that's what's before us today as you face, I think, tax seasons coming up and job changes and stress with your boyfriend because he didn't call you back. That guy's so cute. I mean, there's all these pressures of the world, right? And we're in the middle right now of glory to glory. So the only question before us today is will we choose to engage in things that are eternal and have a mindset as we enter into the present or, or just get caught up in live? and die, and earthworms. That's a big difference, right? Um, My name's Les. (laughs) I already started preaching. I get the uh, privilege of serving as an elder at this church and I'll be doing that for seven more weeks Uh, My family and I are heading off on a new adventure to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, The company I own merged with another company, and um, we're excited about the new adventure. Uh, We have a a little bit of heavy hearts. We thought about hiding on Sundays until we leave so we didn't have to see any of you guys. Uh, We have heavy hearts at the thought of breaking physical interaction and daily fellowship with you. We saw this church start with 50 people meeting in the back hallway of a borrowed space, grow to a body where Jesus is bringing dead men to life. Jesus is saving young people, including three of my four children. We served for two and a half years leading kids church. When the church was open, my wife and I did. I followed my wife there. She still leads there today, but they made me stop doing it when I made the kids do wall sits and push-ups for not listening to me. <laughs> we see the sunset on our time with this body approaching and our hearts are forever thankful. None none of what we experienced has happened because of anything special about me or Emily. We just committed that whenever there was a need, we'd be quick to raise our hands and make ourselves available. No special skills, just willing. We believe his work would have been accomplished without us. We said, if you're going to use anyone with God, use us. And we have absolute confidence that it'll be accomplished in our absence. The only question for you is if you'll be willing to raise your hand and be available when the same request comes from our body. Church, we love you and we look forward to these next two months. If you'll turn your Bibles to Mark 11. With me, we'll look at the Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to face what he knew would be certain death. Hey, um, if you could pinch to the middle, uh, if you... Could There's like six seats left. I know I was supposed to do this right when I came up here. but um, Or whistle or something to somebody if you see them standing and they want a seat. Uh, today's Palm Sunday. Um, this is the day that celebrates what the Bible calls Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, but in the book of John, the story comes in chapter 12 of 20. It's the last week of his life. It comes in chapter 12 of 20. And there's still eight chapters of the book left. Uh, in Matthew, it comes in chapter 21 of 28. In Mark, it comes in chapter 11 of 16 chapters. And yet, it's the last week of his life. So much of what the gospel tells us about Jesus' life happened in that last week from his uh, today, Palm Sunday, to the resurrection. And there's so much. We'll read Mark 11 together. It's going to be really tiny on the screen. And if you feel like complaining, you should have brought your Bible. it's really small. <laughs> now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter into it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt. As Jesus said, tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing? Just like Jesus said they would. What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, that he was going to be the one riding it, and he let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna, you probably won't hear anywhere else outside of church. I would encourage you this week, if you wanna freak people out and potentially get them to come with you to Easter, just say, great to meet you, Hosanna. Just drop a Hosanna somewhere in conversation. Uh, It's kinda like saying Jesus in the middle of the room. Immediately everybody goes, oh! Is he gonna start talking about religion? Right, Those two things will cause the room, the complexity, to change. And just as a heads up, I'm going to jump between Matthew and Mark. They both have a... Ki- Uh, car wreck happens, different witnesses, right? You get different perspectives of the same story. So Matthew, Mark, and John, that offers a level of veracity to the story that wouldn't be there otherwise if only one person saw it, but multiple people saw it and multiple people wrote about it. So we're gonna jump back. So if you're a person who really likes someone to go verse by verse by verse through a passage, either remanage your expectations or you don't have to keep listening. (laughs) Let me recommend something if you're gonna study a passage of the Bible. And that is, uh, we need to do a whole lot of noticing first before we jump into the text. We need to do a whole lot of noticing. Uh, to really figure out what does this mean. We need to start noticing. I want us to notice three things as we get started. First, I want us to notice the context of the passage. There was a crisis that just happened. There was a crisis uh, that just happened. I'd encourage you to take your phone and drop notes, okay? Okay. Um, Mark records the, the crisis that's happened in chapter 10, right? where Mark chapter 11. Mark records the crisis in chapter 10. Matthew records the crisis in chapter 20. Both of them saw it. Two blind men called to Jesus from the side of the road, and they say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus goes over to them, and he says, hey, what can I do? What can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said, have mercy on us. And Jesus heals them. They're no longer blind. Now, you might say, that's really great. Uh, Jesus performs a lot of miracles. Why is that one so much different? Well, there's a reason it's so much different. Uh, one more miracle, it's not, that's not just what this is. What you realize, what this means for chapter 21 is this is the very first time, it's the very first time that Jesus had been given the title of Messiah or Savior, Savior and he responded with, yes. It's the first time that Jesus was given the title Messiah, Son of David, And he says, yes. Who's the son of David? When the blind men begin to call out son of David, everyone at that time knew who that was. And the son of David, he was the messianic king. He was the Messiah that was predicted for ages. The son of David was the ultimate king, the final king of the world. And for the first time, someone cries out in public and says, oh, ultimate king, final king of the world, and Jesus, right? This is why Jesus, oh, ultimate king, and he says, yes. So we can't move past this without noticing the monumental moment that the people around him are experiencing. Jesus is 12, they had to gasp. They, They had to say, wait a second, people have done that before, and you didn't respond like that you tell us about your upcoming suffering or you, you're always speaking in mysterious ways. They had to gasp and this was a crisis and here's why it's a crisis. When Jesus responds to that name, the deliverer, the Messiah, that means either he must triumph, he's responding, oh final king, yes. He, he now has to either triumph or he has to be put to death. There is no in between, right? There's been claims that people would say to him but he's owning it now. And so uh, they knew he must triumph or be demolished. And this is the first thing we have to see. It's a great dramatic tension that we see in chapter 10 and chapter 20 before we head into what we're covering today. The second thing we have to notice, uh, and this is something that was very new to me as I've studied it, because I saw this pastor as a little kid with felt board and palms. That's what I saw. And somewhere, I don't know if someone told me, but I connected the story in my head as uh, Jesus, son of Javis, and Jesus was like, oh, shucks, guys. Okay, yeah, that's me. For whatever reason, that was the picture. So we need to look at how Jesus responded in scripture. I'm speechless, I guess I'll mount the donkey. Jesus is an absolute, Jesus is an absolute control of the moment. And arranges, don't miss, Jesus is in absolute control and he arranges every bit of what we're about to see. If you wanna see it, uh, he sends his disciples into Bethpage to get a donkey. And so Bethpage and Bethany, they're two neighboring villages just outside of Jerusalem and they were very close to each other and Jesus knew these both very intimately. Uh, Bethany, if you'll remember, it was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Okay, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you haven't been around church, Lazarus, dead, alive now. Dead man, alive now, right? Probably the word got out. They didn't have social media, but I'm gonna take a wild stab that probably the word got out. Lazarus, dead guy, walking around. Story probably got out. So the people at Bethany and Bethpage, they knew exactly who he was. And so when Jesus sent them in into the city, when he sent his disciples, two disciples into the city, and they came to get the donkey, it happened exactly like Jesus said. You see, when Jesus sends his disciples to get a donkey in his colt, you may think, surely he had an arrangement with somebody. He had to. He told him exactly, but Jesus had been to that city. He knew where the donkeys were tied up. He knew where the animals were tied up because he'd spent a significant amount of time there. There's no indication that we see that there was already an arrangement that was in place. And as a matter of fact, Jesus very clearly expects for them just to walk in and grab a donkey and people are going to say something. That's why he said that people say, hey, what's going on? And what does Jesus say? He said, make sure you let them know I'm gonna be the one riding it. So my question today is, what picture do you have of Jesus? Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. Or is there some sort of balance between Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild and the ultimate king? That's the nature, right? That's the beautiful nature of Jesus that somehow we'll see the day gets paired. Now, if you look carefully at Matthew's account, you'll see the crowd that's mentioned arrives before he gets to Jerusalem. Again, I hadn't noticed this before. So if you've been around church, follow what's happening. It, didn't, it wasn't an accident as he was walking into all of the palms waving. In verse eight of chapter 21 in Matthew, the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. Next you see in verse nine of chapter 21 of Matthew that the disciples went in as Jesus instructed them. Uh, large crowds spread their cloaks uh, while others cut branches and the crowds went ahead of him. And those that followed, those that followed him were praising. He's not at Jerusalem yet. So the crowd walking with him was not from Jerusalem. The crowd was gathered outside of Jerusalem. Why is this important? He's in total control. He's organizing, he's orchestrating events. And for the first time, forcing the issue by making sure he comes into Jerusalem, being declared king as loudly as possible. So the heads of Jerusalem absolutely can not ignore his claims of kingship. They can't ignore his claims of kingship and they'll have to move. They have to do something. Third thing, one last thing we'll notice before we ask what the heck this all means. And we will ask what all this means that we're noticing is his choice of steed. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. The disciples have gotta be so happy, so, so happy that their master's finally making his identity known to them. Jesus is very mysterious throughout scripture up to this point about his kingship. Every time they try to say, hey, let's go, let's take power, you can raise the dead, you can calm stores, we've seen it. We can rid ourselves of these Roman leaders so easily. Jesus just replies again with some mysterious statement about his impending suffering. And now instead of getting on a Roman steed, a war horse, riding into town as a victorious general, they had to be thinking, what the heck is going on here? So who rides a donkey? Um, uh, Sancho Pons, isn't that a guy's name in Don Quixote? He rides a donkey. Uh, servants ride donkeys. And most certainly is not the steed of a king. And so uh, we'll get back to that in just a second. You, you can imagine the disciples getting fired up as the ultimate king and realizing Jesus really needs a marketing firm. Um, he just didn't have the instincts about this PR stuff. Um, maybe he grabbed the, the uh, what's he called? The, the Peyton Manning of the day. And I can hear the, disciples i'm jesus i'll take your throne like they they need something that happens there like farmers right um, he is god bum 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 like like something they're like give us something to work with here right you're you're riding a donkey if you finally get it and you're stepping into it good job but the, you can see their brains right trying to process it doesn't make sense oh ultimate king and yet he's going so low. So third, we notice the fact that he's giving mysterious signals. And here's what it all means. As we sit in verse five of chapter 21, here's what it all means. Verse five says, behold, your king comes to you. What does that word say? So there's a beautiful dichotomy right here, this paradox that's happening. Behold, your king comes to you humble. That word usually doesn't make us stiffen up our back very often in the way that it's used in most societies. So right there, we see two things about Jesus's kingship. Your king comes to you humble. One, we see the confrontational nature of the kingship of Jesus. So first thing we see is the confrontational nature of the kingship of Jesus. The second thing we see is the paradoxical nature of the kingship of Jesus. Now, when I'm sitting over there I sit over there, it feels totally weird, but I always sit over there. And when I'm sitting over there, uh, when people use big words on the stage, it's like, okay, will you just please tell me what that means? Because I'm trying to Google it on my phone and then I'm already lost, right? So um, most of you probably know, but the paradoxical nature of Jesus, it paradox is seemingly absurd. It's a self-contradictory event or a statement. King, king, humble. King, humble. King, humble humble. First of all, confrontational in nature, you're king. Jesus is not reluctant. It's not an oh oh shucks nature about this move that he's making. Um, It was deliberate and otherwise stated. And and guys, if you're going to write something, uh, so write this down, right? This is helpful for me to make sure I'm always holding Jesus in the perspective that the Bible presents him, not the way that my parents or relatives or Sunday school teacher or whatever it was, all of those things are good and help shake a picture, but we want a picture of Jesus that's founded on what scripture says about him, right? That's God's truth. It's not living out of our experience because there's not power living out of our experience. There's power living out of the word of God. What does it say? Jesus is incredibly humble, but he's in no way modest. So as men, we need to understand, right? We see he's incredibly humble, but he's in no way modest. Modest. What is the blend there and where does his modesty? When I read the scripture, I see incredibly, incredible humility displayed by Jesus, such sensitivity, such tenderness, such compassion, kindness, but there's no way you can call him modest. The thing that's unique about Jesus is in his dealings, so in his dealings with other people, in his dealings with other people, he's unbelievably humble, loving, tender, gentle, incredible. When he comes to dealing with his own name, when he comes to dealing with himself, there's not a shred of modesty. He's continually making claims. And you'd say, I don't know how I feel about that. Like Jesus is pretty modest. He's pretty chill. Okay. So he says by multiple accounts, ultimate king of the universe. Yes. What would you like for me to do for you? Does the picture you have of Jesus line up with that? We would not sing songs Sunday morning 2,000 years later if we had a picture of Jesus. Uh, oh, shucks, guys. I don't want to follow that. Jesus, yes. He goes to the temple. This is awesome. He goes to the temple. What's the temple? It's God's house. We just read the verse from the stage. He goes to the temple. It's God's house. He walks in and he says, What? My house are you going to walk into the temple of God at that time and say, this is my house? And he literally says he starts flipping, he starts rearranging furniture because it's his house and he knows where the furniture goes. That's his house. It's my house. And I'm going to show you where the furniture goes and the purpose to which it's used for. No one else did that. There were a lot of really righteous men. No one's flipping, turning, rearranging furniture because they said it's his house. So what we see in Jesus's character, Jesus is the most immodest who ever lived. And he's constantly forcing his identity on us. He's always confronting, he's always arranging it. So we have to look at him for who he is. And he's not gonna slip into Jerusalem. Crowds, when he called the donkey, when he called for the donkey, he knew the people would come. He called the donkey, he called the people. And he said, I'm walking into because he was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. It's the only motivation that you'd walk towards endless amounts of torture, unbearable torture. He had to have something that drew his sight towards something that was bigger than himself. And it was you. Like that should change us, right? Jesus comes to any city when he does in his confrontational nature. And hear what I say. He says, crown me. He says, crown me or kill me. There's not a middle. So crown me or kill me, there's not a middle. Jesus forces everybody's hand, crown me or kill me. That's what he's saying as he's walking in. The disciples realize it. That's why you see them in a state of awe. Um, My suggestion to you is this is not just what he does in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but this is what he does to any intellect and any heart today. Let's say you come to him and say, and and guys, I've been here, right? So we come to him and say, Jesus, you know what? Every time I see about you, you're really cool. Like, it's really cool. I'd really like some help, but I'd like to invite you to be my advisor. I'd like to, for, to invite you to be my, my friend and my counselor. I'd like to invite you to be my consultant. He says, I could be so much more than that. I can be your friend. I can be your advocate and I can be your sh- shepherd, but I, I will not be anything unless I'm your king. Either I'll be king or I'll be nothing like that. We celebrate Palm Sunday with the impending death of Jesus that we see next Sunday. It's why all of America right now, the highest attendance for the entire year, because something inside of us says there has to be something more. And this room, you think it's full now. We'll be pulling chairs. People will be sitting in aisles. Don't invite the fire marshal. He says, I can be so much more than that. I can be your friend. But only if you make me king. There's a very frightening place, and I'll read it, in the book of Revelation where St. John the Apostle says that he heard Jesus once in a vision say, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. So think about that. When you eat foods, hot food, good. Cold food, good. Tepid food, bad. Bad. Hot food, good. Cold food, good. Lukewarm food, not good. Very few. Jesus says, crown me and walk with me in your purpose or kill me, because at least if you're angry at me, you're listening to me. And this is the confrontational nature of Jesus. And by the way, friends, I want you to hear what I say here. Uh, We all know that there's a lot of people in this room, probably a few hundred, that would think what I just said is fairly extreme. Crown me or kill me, there's gotta be something other than that. Um, you love right now, as you sit where you're at, you love to admire Jesus. You like to look up to him. You have great respect for him. You'd like to pray to him sometimes, but you really just don't like the whole idea that he must be the very center. You really don't like the idea and I must give him unconditional surrender or nothing at all. You don't like that. I'm attempting to point out that Jesus comes to Jerusalem and as he comes to everyone's heart today and he says, in a sense, like you gotta deal with it. You gotta fall on one side. There is no middle to land on or I wouldn't have come and I wouldn't have taken on Calvary. Even with that, there's many of you who still don't like what I'm saying. And uh, I hope you're not mad at me. Be mad at Jesus. Maybe you've never experienced what's available in the power available with Jesus as king of your life. Could be you've spent your days liking Jesus rather than crowning him king. And the Bible has a story about seven sons that did the exact same thing. Uh, If you look at Paul, Paul was setting up a church, uh, was uh, uh, propping up church early Acts, Acts 19. There's a story, uh, it might be, in my opinion, one of the funniest stories in the Bible. It's not funny, but it is funny, right? Uh, Acts 19, seven sons of Siva. So these people are watching and they hear that Paul, in the name of Jesus, is performing miracles. So he's performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And these are these Jewish exorcists. And so the, the, the people, the seven sons, um, they go and find a demon-possessed man. And when they find the demon-possessed man, they're like, all right, let's try it. You ready? Okay, this is gonna be really cool. Um, in the name of Jesus, you guys need to flip to this. It's it, not, not right now, but you really gotta go read it. It's chapter 19, starts in verse 11, and goes on from there. He says, they say, in the name of Jesus, and, uh, that that Paul professes, uh, Demons, be gone. In the name of Jesus that Paul professes, demons, be gone. Maybe as you sit here today, you've never experienced the power of Jesus, right? Because like them, you thought, that's really cool what's happening in other people's lives. Watch what happens. The sons of Caesar, they go to the demon-possessed man. This is what he says. Guys, this is crazy. The demon looks at the seven sons. The demon looks at them and says, huh, Jesus I know this is right about Jesus I know Paul I recognize but who are you This demon possessed man J- Jesus I know Paul I recognize but who are you using that name He jumps on them beats them all they flee naked and wounded Attempting to use the power that wasn't available to them for a purpose it wasn't intended for What do you do with that, right? It's really hilarious. I see seven naked men running away. It feels like a cartoon. And on the other side, there's nothing humorous about it at all. That's the power that's available. Uh, The power of Jesus is not magic. It's not mechanical. It's kingly power. Now, there are likely a lot of you in here who really like what I just said. And you love the fact, you said, king me or kill me. And you're like, king him. King him, I know it. And that's where I'd be. If I was sitting in your chair, I'd be like, king him. Right now, king him. All day long, kingdom. And my challenge to you is the same challenge that I would offer uh, myself: is look at our life. Paul said, "Take every thought captive, hold it, and look at it." As we walk along, because we live in broken man, broken people, broken world, right? So as we walk daily in intimate fellowship, we're like, hey, we good? Are we good? Right? There's a confidence that comes on our life because we're walking right into our purpose. second observation, and then we button it up. Jesus comes in a paradoxical nature. The king comes gentle. The thing we already alluded to was this whole thing about the donkey. And so uh, one of the reasons he does this coming in on the donkey is there were prophecies in the Old Testament that said the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. Uh, He came riding on a donkey to show us that he would interact with us. This is how we interact with the world. So how did he come hear this, salvation for people came in this form. Salvation was the king putting himself in the place of the servants. Sin is the servants putting ourselves in the place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of the servant. Sin, us, our sin, is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. Listen, this is what's wrong with the world today. This is why the world is broken today. What can cause on one end the Holocaust and on the other end, some of you are sitting there right now all torqued out on the inside, stressed with worry. This very morning, it's extremes. The Holocaust occurred because there were people that put themselves in the place of God and said, I am God and this is the way things should go. And as you sit there today uh, with stress not experiencing the joy that should be overflowing is because we believe that we know exactly what our life should look like and the reality of your life today is not lining up with the reality of what you think your life should look like and we in some instance hear what i'm saying we're putting ourselves in the seat of god saying this is what my life should look like and what you're left with is all torqued out on the inside so what does the world say we should do about the horrible state of the world. Other religions say, send messengers. That's what we should go do. Send messengers, tell the people in their own strength, just grip it and rip it. White knuckle it and figure it down. Lock it out and be good. Live well. Christianity says doing that is like selling Band-Aids to bleeding hearts. Christianity says the king, he came to serve. What does it look like today to live boldly and humbly? What does it look like today to live boldly and humbly like Jesus did? A real paradox, this gentle king. Um, by my own nature, um, I am a 30-pound sledgehammer uh, when it comes to dealing with people. Quick to speak, slow to listen, um, quick to stir dissension. What does it look like to see God, what he did, send his son, Jesus, to walk in full authority as a gentle king? What does it do when it changes us? Less the human wrecking ball of truth delivery, trails of dead bodies in my wake. As I begin to understand Jesus's model of leadership, how does that play out? Right, and we'll wrap up with this. What does it look like when we see Jesus and experience Him? I telling you guys, thirty pound sledgehammer. Start looking at the life of Jesus, and every day a little more, becoming more like Him. Um, f- 15 years of marriage right now and from early on, Emily and I have consistently prayed that our home would be, um, that, that our home would be uh, what we see in Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary wear and burdened. Now I'll give you, re- give you rest, that our home would be a place of rest. We've had seven or eight people live with us over time and uh, one of those, several of those, I'm the oldest of eight, like I said, so I have lots of siblings that have used us as a landing spot when they've gotten off the map a little bit. One of those came and said, we'd like to live with you. So we sat down and set expectations. Uh, We sat down and managed. What I would do, right in my own nature, is say, hey, just to be real clear, you're living in my house now, and this is my world. Cross the line, your stuff will be sitting out in front. I gave you a place to live. That's what things look like, and that's the way the world's going to work. What we did is we sat down and said, hey, what does it look like? You're an adult. Instead, the opposite of that, you're an adult. But this is my house and God's given me authority, right? King over my home, servant hearted. So what does it look like for you to be able to live out your life and still live under the authority of the home? One afternoon she came to us and said, "Uh, hey, Les, I want my friend named Ryan to come over. I want my uh, friend named Ryan to come over and we said, yeah, that'd be great. And then he said, she said, Les, I want Ryan's, he, he's bringing his boyfriend um, now when I say that this room's gonna fall on all different sides of thoughts uh, and so I don't know how you grew up but um, I'm not even sure where it came from likely because I grew up in Southern Baptist um, my instant response was no I'm not gonna do that so I paused I uh, said Lord what does this look like to love neighbors well I said yeah you can invite him over Ryan and Chris showed up later that evening, and we fed them, and we loved them, and we laughed with them. And they ate Emily's chocolate chip cookies, which taste like dough ball uh, streams of heaven caressing every taste bud inside your mouth. As the night uh, grew late, my, my sister approached me and said, Hey, you guys are heading to bed. Can we stay up and watch a movie? and I said, oh, hold on just one second. And I went in the other room with Emily and I said, Lord, I don't know what it looks like. Um, Lord, I don't know what it looks like right now to love my neighbor well and still guard the influences that are in my home. What does that look like? So I walked back out. What are we talking about? Jesus, bold, confident king, stepping into who he was, but at the same time, serve low when he interacted with other people, showing the world love. So I went out and I asked Ryan and Chris to hang out with me for a second. First, I asked them if Emily and I had done a good job making them feel like family. As I sat there, knee to knee, eye to eye, looking at them, hey, do we do a good job making you feel like family? And they're like, yeah. Have we made you feel love? Yeah. They're they're really nervous because these guys were about this, this big. So I asked them for their help. I explained I'm caught between the tension of wanting to love them uh, as my own, but I also believe I'm called to guard the influences that are allowed in my home. And carefully I explained that I believe the lifestyle that they're pursuing was not God honoring And If my kids wake up and see Ryan and Chris cuddling on the couch, they'd be confused about what I was allowing that. So I asked them how they thought I should handle that tension that I long to love them, and at the same time, I'm called to guard the influences that happen in my home. Loving them well, but obeying the calling to guard the walls of my home. And in that moment, as we sat knee to knee, looking, inviting him into the conversation, unwavering what God's called me to, and the authority to live in to give a covering over my home as the dad and the husband. Ryan looked at Chris, and he looked back at me, and he dropped his head in his hands. And he bawled his eyes out. He said, Les, you have no idea what it's like to live a day in my shoes. We get mocked, we get made fun of, but you loved us this whole night. You loved us this whole night. And so what my, our commitment to you is, absolutely we wanna honor your, your home. We absolutely, is it okay if we sit on the same couch? This is the picture, right, of what does it look like? Fully confident, walking in authority, unwavering of what God's called us to, n- not being afraid to say, this is what I see that scripture says, this is what my calling is, and in the middle of all that showering love on the world around us. Somewhere in the midst of that. Behold, your king comes to you humble. Crown him or kill him. You can't just like him. Learn from him how to boldly lead, humbly. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thankful for your word. God, even as we sit here right now, we know as we picked up your word today, we looked at it, we walked through it. But a lot of us are coming out of experience. A lot of us are coming out of uh, mis- um, mismanaged uh, education, expectations, about who you are and what's available and walking in full authority with you. God, even as we pray right now, move hearts, change hearts, change lives. We trust you. In your name we pray, amen.